Howdy guys, welcome to the Sacred City Life podcast, a podcast about following Jesus in the normal rhythms of everyday life. I am your host, Pastor Justin Dean, pastor of Sacred City Church in Davenport, Iowa. And today I have a guest with me, Dr. Casey Shutt. Casey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, Casey was an elder at Sacred City Church uh, a few years back, and then Casey got moved out of the area uh, with his job. And uh, Casey, I, I want you to uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what you're doing right now. Uh, you're in Oklahoma City, is that right? That's correct. Yep. I, uh, I work at a classical Christian school. And that's actually when we were in Iowa, I was working at the classical Christian school in Bettendorf called Morningstar Academy. And now I'm at a school in Oklahoma City. Uh, we, I grew up in a Christian home, but as I entered into upper elementary, middle school, even high school, kind of began to start having some intellectual questions, doubts about the faith, and sort of those, those were unresolved, those questions, until I got into high school under the influence of a youth pastor that introduced me to folks like C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, guys that were great minds that were wrestling with these questions. And all of a sudden I thought, oh, okay, I don't understand everything these guys are saying about these, these questions that I have, but, but, but they know more than I do. Mm. And they have credibility. And that was a extremely um, satisfying thing to encounter and really kind of put me on this course where um, I began to love education and I began to feel called to serve and uh, to serve the church ultimately, but saw the, the classical Christian school setting as a strategic place from which to serve the church sort of serve as a, as a bridesmaid to the bride. That's good. Raising up kids in the faith. And today, just to let everybody know, I want, we're going to get into um, schooling and education choices that parents have to make. Uh, We're going to talk about Christian, you know, Christian classical education, what that means. Uh, I also want to talk about spiritual formation and spiritual and and discipleship and kind of worship as spiritual formation. Um, But I think what I want to start out with today is uh, Casey, you you did your PhD, um, where at again? Durham University right. in England. In England, oh, yes. Yeah. So you're far more <laughs> educated than I am, and you're way smarter than I am, and, and your, your thesis was in, in work, is that, is that correct? That's right, faith and work. Faith and work. Yeah, it, it, by the way, that PhD really just means I'm overrated. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel. He's humble too, folks. Uh, and this is this is the real Casey. So um, I always lead with his I always lead with his credentials. So you guys know he's legit, and you need to listen to him. And he never leads with his credentials. So I didn't find out he had a PhD until like the third or fourth time we met, I think. So, uh, um, but that's what I want to start out with today is this this idea of maybe a theology of work or how our faith informs our work. Um, I think more people are coming to understand it, but I think it's still pretty foreign. You know, I get how the pastor's job 
you know, is is ministry and is inspired by God. But what about the guy, you know, working in the John Deere plant? Right. Yeah. Well, I think within Christianity, within evangelicalism in America, at least, uh, there is this tendency to want to um, hyper-spiritualize the faith. Uh, and, you know, if you, look at, if you look at Scripture, right there from the beginning, God opens His mouth and He begins working, forming, and shaping this creation that He's made, ex nihilo. And then He calls hum- humans to, uh, to do the same, to take care of the garden. And He's built us in such a way that we, and He's built creation in such a way that we have to cultivate creation. We have to work in order to live, in order to survive, in order to not just survive, but to actually thrive if we, if we uh, work well. And so um, it's built deep into who we are as people. Um, and, it's, and it's built that way on purpose. Like this whole work thing preceded the, the fall. Uh, so it's, it's part of what life looks like without sin even in the picture. Now, we, we tend to not like work. Many of us, some of us love work and it's all, it's, it's all we do, uh, it defines our lives. So that's one problem. The other problem is to, to avoid it at all costs. Um, but the reason we have those two kind of struggles with work is because of sin. Sin has tainted, you know, all, all of life, including work. Um, but, but that, that concept of work really was kind of, was kind of lost, uh, in many ways, until the Protestant Reformation. And Martin Luther, you know, sort of made the claim that when, you know, when we pray, uh, Father, give us our daily bread, God could drop bread from heaven, just like he dropped manna from heaven. But that's not normally how he works, right? When we're praying that prayer, there's a, there's a farmer out in the wheat field harvesting that wheat taking it to the bakery, it's being baked, the, the the delivery boy brings it to our house. All of these people doing these various jobs are God's means of answering that prayer. Um, and so he began to see all of all of uh, all of work as being integral integral to um, serving humanity and a key piece of of of, of who we are as people. So anyway, I think Christians have a very rich view of work, and uh, that's what I spent this PhD kind of looking at was that subject. And I think it was uh, Luther who said, uh, the Christian cobbler doesn't do his work in a Christian way by kind of chiseling in little crosses on every shoe. Uh, (laughs) Is it something like that? Is it something along those lines, right? Well, I'm not I'm not familiar with with that quote exactly, but but the idea is there that you don't that work that we we don't have to work to sort of spiritualize the task that we're doing. the The concern of God is that we 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 are like it's like we're wearing God's masks and that we're serving. Like maybe this is one way to think about it. Service is the this is how we love our neighbor is through the work that we do. And uh, oftentimes we think of work, the work we do as being kind of about serving ourselves. Like, this is how I make money so I can provide for my family and take care of myself, which is, that's important. But even more profoundly, our work is a, a means by which we serve 
if we're working at John Deere, uh, serve the farmer who's farming our land, who's producing the fruit that we all eat from. You know, there's mm-hmm. everybody is serving somebody through the work that they do. So is there a distinctly Christian way to work? Well, I think a, a distinctly Christian way of working acknowledges God as the giver of life and the work as primarily a way of loving neighbor and not loving self. Mm. I mean, that that alone completely transforms your motivation for doing work, uh, for, for even pursuing a job. You know, I mean, if, if you're faced with several career choices, how many of us are driven by the question of not what is the benefits package, what is the salary, but in which one of these positions can I best serve my neighbor? Um, I think that's how a Christian should think about their work. That's good. I think, I, you know, to put it through our kind of terminology at Sacred City, you know, one way you could say that is, you know, in some way it's it's making disciples or it's renewing the city. It's bringing renewal. It's it's um, making things better. Right. Yeah. And uh, and so for like the stay at home mom or the mom who's at home, you know, thinking all I see are these children all day long and all I'm doing is changing diapers and cleaning the floor over and over and over. There's still a work of tending the garden. That's basically what she's doing. Yeah, right. and that's a great work, by the way. <laughs> uh, I hear, I hear it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I get to partake in it occasionally, but my youngest is three, so we are moved out of the changing diapers, and I'm very yeah. thankful for it. Yeah, that's good. Us too, by the way. We're kind of on that same track as far as the ages go. And how many kids do you have, Casey? I forgot to bring that up. Three. We've got three, and the oldest is uh, in fifth grade, and the youngest is in preschool. Okay, and two boys and a girl, right? That's yeah, yeah, two boys and a girl. Okay. Um, so, what would you say to the to the guy that? I mean, I think there there are some jobs that we know if we have a theology of work and we're kind of partnering. Uh, let's just say we're we're getting in the stream of what God's doing in the universe. Uh-huh. Bring, bringing renewal, loving neighbor. Um, there, within that, there would be some careers that would probably be uh, off limits for the, for the for the Christian. Right? I don't mm-hmm. think it's probably helpful to, to list all those, but uh, some things that would be um, exploiting creation, maybe, yeah. or or bringing, not bringing about human flourishing, but instead uh, restricting flourishing. Right? Yeah. Um, but what about the jobs that seem menial or meaningless? You're putting, let's just, you're putting a cog on in a wheel, right? A, as a part of an assembly line. Let's just, I'm just making this up. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Is it, you know, you know, you, and you put your eight hours in a day or ten hours in this factory that you never see the sun, and then and then you come you come home. Is there is there meaning found in that type of work? Well, yes, I, I think there can be. Now, there, so one of the unique things that, that we face is that we actually have a choice in all of this. You know, 300 years ago, we grew up uh, on a farm and we 
we farm or we grow up in the home of a blacksmith and that's what we do. There's no choice in it really. You just, you grow up, you're an apprentice and then you eventually do the work that has sort of been predetermined for you to do. Um, and so it's a great uh, blessing for us to have an array of options that t- available to us uh, when we do our work. Now, sometimes maybe it's lack of experience, whatever the circumstances are, there may come times in our lives when we're doing like you mentioned, this tiny little sliver of a task that seems so disconnected from any any human being, it's very difficult to see how what we're, what we're doing is going to serve anybody or help contribute to flourishing. What do you do in that situation? I think I think in that in those circumstances, um, it's important. In other words. You, you may not be in a position of power to change that sort of structural issue. And you may also be in a situation where you need to make money. So I guess kind of in, in that situation, I think you make the best of it. And you do try to connect the dots of how what you're doing is serving uh, someone. But, you know, at the, and this goes back to, again, our, our nature as created beings. There may be seasons where we do work that is deeply unfulfilling uh, but it's necessary to do for a season because we've got to eat <laughs> at the yeah. end of the day. Um, so, you know, this is not to say that adopting a Christian view of work is going to make all of work, you know, a deeply satisfying thing. It's still going to be marked by the fall. And it's, it's fallenness may not even be something that you can do anything about. Um, but at the very least, it's, it's kind of the station where God has you for that season. Um, and so, you know, making the best of it, I suppose, yeah. is, is what is what I would say. Um, yeah. So I don't so, know if that's helpful. No, that, that's helpful. I think because we are Christians and we don't find our identity through our work, rather, we find our identity through Christ. Uh, we've died to ourselves, and we've been risen, you know, raised to new life in Christ and our new our new life is hidden in Christ and God. We don't have to use our careers to find our identities. And so we are probably free, more free to do meaningless tasks mm-hmm. um, because we don't actually have to find our purpose in life in our career. We can wake up, put, right. our, put our boots on and, and just put in hard effort, hard work, you know, use the bodies that God's given us to put a cog in a wheel and send it down the assembly yeah. line. And we can love God in the midst of it, and we can love the guy working next to us in the midst of this, and we can submit yeah. to our authorities, and then we can feed our family, right? right. And go yes. home and, and uh, go to church and go to missional community <laughs> and make yeah. disciples. So No, that's exactly right. It's, it's, it's a great point. It reminds me of Ephesians uh, either 5 or 6. It's at the end of 5 or the beginning of 6 where Paul instructs slaves, um, which I think the, the modern application is kind of work relationships. Um, to to basically work as though they're working for Christ wherever they're working and however mundane the work is, and menial to work to the unto the Lord. Yeah, I think you kind of you touched on it there. We're in a unique uh, kind of epoch or whatever of time where you know our name our last name doesn't determine what we do for a living anymore, right? And and because of that. We, we just want to define ourselves. We want to find some career that, that gives us uh, an identity. 
right? And so career has kind of become more than just mm-hmm. what I do. It, it, it's become oftentimes who I am, you know? And you ask somebody, yeah. what do you do? Well, yeah. I am a lawyer, you know, or I am a doctor, or I am this. Um, it's got this identity yeah. piece. And I think part of living in this culture is, in one sense, separating ourselves from that, that uh, the identity that comes with whatever we do. Right. And finding ourselves who we are in Christ while being free to use work as a blessing or treat work as a blessing or, you know, yeah. something, something like that. Right. That's good. It's really good. Um, so anything else, any, anything kind of interesting or that you wanted to touch on from your, from your thesis that maybe we wouldn't, uh, have thought about when it comes to faith and work? Yeah, I think one of the major findings, and, and by the way, I wasn't really putting forth a theology of work in my thesis, what I was doing was um, interviewing Christians on how they understand their working lives. It's sort of thinking about that as it relates to the larger question of how Christians relate to the culture. And so one, one of the things I, I, I noticed is that a lot of Christians, when they think about what it means to work uh, in a Christian manner, they think it means a lot of Christians reduce that to meaning workplace evangelism, which is an important piece of it. But there is a uh, there is an importance to the very work that you do, which is what we you know talked about earlier. I think that um, that understanding was sort of lacking in, in some of the churches and the Christians that I that I interviewed for this PhD work, and that's what I would like for Christians to understand, Mm. to better understand is that apart from evangelism, as important as that is, and it is important, um, the very work that you do, you honor Christ with the, with how you actually do the labor that you do. Mm. So anyway, that, no, I think that's, that's fascinating to me. I think many times, I think growing up, I would say, you know, if somebody asked me, does God care more about you sharing your faith with your coworker while at work? Or um, the fact that you show up on time, the quality of work that you perform, the attitude that you have regarding work, right? What does, you know, I would say, no, he wants me to share my faith. You know, if I, right. get, fi- if I get fired, I get fired, right? Right. Not that big of a deal. Um, yeah. So I think, that's, I think that is important um, to talk about. You know, yeah. I think as Christians, we have the resources to do our jobs and do our jobs to the best of, to the best of our ability. Yeah. And that that's what honors the Lord. Um, and I think Martin Luther was kind of getting at that, not by putting a little cross, you know, in your cubicle, <laughs> right. right. Or wearing a Christian tie. <laughs> yeah. You know, but <laughs> that how, might, might actually work against your <laughs> evangelism efforts. Quite possibly. <laughs> All right. So I want to get into, um, I don't know what I want to do first. I, I, I kind of want to get into your, your maybe, maybe the gateway drug of uh, James K.A. Smith. And I know he's got, he's kind of a connecting point between uh, how you got into classical Christian education and also your idea of, of spiritual formation and, uh, and the, wor- the words, some of the words we use around here, you know, liturgy and yeah. uh, how, what we do has an impact on what we love. 
Right. And I know you yeah. just you just had Jamie uh, in Oklahoma City. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So we brought him in as a school and, and uh, it was great because in, in so many ways, his, his book, Desiring the Kingdom, has informed a lot of what we do at our school. Um, but so, yeah, let, let me just kind of backtrack a little bit. And as I was wrapping up this PhD degree, the, the question that confronted me, again, this question that's kind of unique to our time is what, what exactly am I going to do? with my life. <laughs> I've got, I've, I've, I'm, I'm teaching in the college setting. I'm serving as an associate pastor in a church. Um, I've, I've had this experience in the, in the K through 12 setting in a public school setting. So beginning to wonder where God would have me serve. I'm, I'm loving teaching at the college level, but it begins to dawn on me that it might be more strategic to serve in the K through 12 setting because by the time these students reach me, their attitude towards education, so so much of their loves have already been formed by the time they get to college. And would it not be more strategic to to work with these students when from the time they're, you know, four or five to eighteen, these very formative years of their lives? Meanwhile, my own children are reaching school age. And so uh, this classical Christian school setting seems to to me uh, to be this strategic place from which to serve. Now, meanwhile, I'm reading, this is around 2009, 2010, I'm reading James Smith's uh, Desiring the Kingdom. And I'm resonating with so much of what he's describing. And even though I mentioned my, my concerns when it came to the faith were sort of intellectual uh, idea sort of concerns. I think the thing that kept me sort of tethered to the Christian faith were the liturgies that I grew up with. Now, my church background, would, they would not have called them liturgies, but it was the practice of praying with my family growing up, attending church weekly, even the Wednesday, all the other activities that church offered. Those things sort of kept my heart um, in it when my head was sort of drifting. So um, as I got into James Smith's book, it became apparent like, okay, we, we could, the church and the Christian school, the classical Christian school can be way more strategic in how it uh, shapes the loves of, of the students that it has under their care. And so at Morningstar, we began a, a, daily, a daily gathering of worship called an assembly. Here at the school where I'm currently uh, serving, we begin our day with what we call matins, morning worship. We have, uh, and then we have worship sprinkled throughout the day. We pray and sing together at lunch, praying the doxology before we all partake of lunch. Uh, we have another noonday prayer uh, following lunch, and then we have an even song at the end of the day where we all break and go to our, and go home. Um, and I, it, it's my belief that, that the practice of doing this day in and day out will have a formative impact uh, on these students. And actually, I got a little window into it last week. We had this, actually it was two weeks ago, a fire. I'm driving back. I'm, I'm driving back from a lunch. And, and in Oklahoma, uh, one of the things that can happen out on the prairie are, are grass fires. 
And we're in a metropolitan area, but our school is located in this little pocket of prairie within this metropolitan area. And I'm driving back and I see these smoke clouds just rising up. And I think, oh, I hope that's controlled. And then I quickly realize it's not. I mean, the wind, the, the temperature is warm. It, the grass fire potential is really high on this particular day. And sure enough, it's just south of our building. And the fire surrounds uh, our building. We begin an evacuation and the fire department tells us to, to return to, our, to the building. So we all stay in. So it's a very, it's a very tense moment at the school. And, um, but during the midst of all of that, what I kept thinking is the prayer that we pray every day, nearly every day at the school, that just as the Lord has uh, brought us to this day, that he would defend us in the same, right? We pray this prayer. It's a long, part of a longer prayer, but basically praying for God's protection over us. And I kept, in this moment, I kept falling back on that. And we even, we, one of our principals even mentioned to our students, we fell back on the liturgy that we do day in and day out. Because here's the thing, when, you, when suffering comes, and this wasn't major suffering, but it was a, it was a crisis. Mm-hmm. When a crisis comes, when suffering comes, we naturally become inarticulate in our thinking. Mm. And when that happens, we fall back on liturgy. We fall yeah. back on the things that we've repeated day in and day out. And that's what happened. Yeah, you you, um, you kind of are what you. So that's what I wanted to get into. So some of Jamie's uh, ideas that he's putting forth in this book. <clears throat> yeah, uh, he's pushing back against like the Rene Descartes uh, idea of the human person. I think, therefore, I am. Yeah, and he's getting down into something deeper, where I, he would call it um, the imagination or the mm-hmm. gut or our loves. Yep. Uh, that are that kind of drive us along, and what you were just talking about is kind of this idea of, in one sense, when when the crisis comes, I I respond out of the things that I've practiced day mm-hmm. in and day out, uh, and so kind of this uh, idea of whatever it is that I consistently do, when when crisis comes, that's how I naturally respond. I don't think about it and say, what would be the wise thing to do? I just live out of my gut is what Jamie Smith would say. Right. Yes. And, and that, ex- oh, go, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, that, that explains why on a regular basis, when we sin, we know exactly what we're doing and we're, we're sinning against our, our thinking. You know, we know it's wrong. We have that. And yet our heart is pulling us towards towards that sin, whatever it is. I think that's kind of the, the, the you know, the clearest insight to, to the fact that we actually do live out of, like you said, as Smith says, the gut or the heart or the affections or the imagination. And so the question then becomes, so if I don't actually um, do what I think is right, and so I'm not just this cognitive uh, brain, on, uh, head on a stick that does whatever I think is right, but I actually do what I love. My deepest loves drive my behavior. And the problems in my life, in, in the words of Augustine, are disordered loves. So things, mm-hmm. that I, things that I should not love or things that I love in a disordered way. So I, I love... Uh, we, I could go on, you know, in a million different ways. I love my career more than I love my wife or more than I love God. That's a disordered love. So the question becomes, 
how do I change the heart? Right. How do, how do we change the heart? Right. And, and we've been told if you think right thoughts, you you'll feel right feelings. And I think many of us have found that that's just not true. Uh, and so Jamie Smith says you actually change the heart. Now, if I'm wrong, correct me on this. Yeah. You actually change the heart by by changing what you're doing, by changing your habits. Right. Yeah. I think that's exactly that's exactly what it is. Um, and the church has unbelievable resources historically for working on hearts and um, resisting the formation that's all around. Actually, and Smith would say, uh, you know, pe- marketers are really good at shaping our affections and shaping our our guts, our guts, because through through just regular, repeated, like a steady diet of ads and commercials, we are confronted with stories, a, a picture, a vision of the good life that is tethered to uh, a prescription pharmaceutical drug, or that's tethered to a cologne, or a beer, or whatever the the ad is advertising. But over time, that uh, that shapes our affections in such a way that we actually do believe that if we wear uh, a fragrance, that we will have intimacy, or that if we drink the right beer, community will follow quickly. Um, and Smith is saying, so actually what churches need to do is pay attention to what these marketers are doing because they're on to something. They're, sh- they're, they're, they're more effective at shaping uh, people's affections than the church has been. The, the way he puts it, I like the way he puts it in this book. He says, the church is trying to put, put a fire. Uh, the church is trying, I'm sorry, I had a call come in. The church is trying to put out uh, a fire in our heart by pouring water on the head. Because that's our target, and yeah. by and large, in churches, is, is the mind. If we can just get Christians to think the right way, well, then they're gonna they're gonna be faithful Christians. It's just not it's not the case, right? And then you can't. He's not. He's also not saying you you change the heart by going directly after the heart. Uh, yeah. You don't go. You can't. You know, it's shy. You can't go directly at it. You can't. So he's not saying. Well, what 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 churches need to do is just have very emotive worship experiences and let's just not use our brains at all and just try to go, go off the feelings. Um, he's saying, no, it needs to be in a full embodied, um, Mm -hmm. experience. So you, you need to be using your body. And I know the word liturgy, it originally meant the work of the people. And it was a way for people to be involved in the, in the worship experience, right? Through repetition and, uh, you know, the reader would read something and the people would respond and question and answer and catechism and standing and sitting and kneeling that the, the Sunday gathering had these habits and these rhythms that involve the whole person that could shape the deepest core of that person into someone who loves God and loves and loves others. And yeah. so and so in in this um how do you see that 
kind of wedding to classical Christian education or informing it. You said that they kind of brought, brought right. it was kind of yeah. it together. No, I think so. So what we have, we, we have the advantage of spending a lot of time with students in their most formative, formative time of their lives. And so what, what we try to do is create, because Smith would also say we're, we're worshipers at our core, we try to create a worshiping community that is practicing, um, practicing worship all the time. And, and the thing that I mentioned about the liturgies, about the morning worship, the lunchtime worship, the mid-morning, the, the afternoon, and then the even song, having those times of worship where we come together, we're constantly uh, redirecting our hearts mm. up to God and reminding ourselves because we constantly forget uh, that we are worshipers and that God is, well, actually we don't forget that we're worshipers. We forget that our worship needs to be directed to the triune God. And so what we're doing collectively is we're constantly uh, moving ourselves in that direction. Um, and does it get rote at times? Does it get, are there times where we're just sort of going through the motions? Yeah, there are <laughs> a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But see, here's the thing, you know, if, if you watch, um, I remember going to old Kaminsky Park when I was a kid and watching, they were playing the uh, Yankees and Don Mattingly, one of the best hitters of, of his time right now, a manager for, I'm not, I don't even remember what team, but a manager in baseball, Don Mattingly, one of the greatest hitters. I'm like in like third grade, he's hitting off a tee. And my dad said, Hey, look, that's one of the best hitters in baseball hitting off a tee. You're not too old for a tee. Mm. Um, and the point is, here was a guy who could hit the ball, but he was going through the motions of practicing his swing because, and, and, and yes, it was probably a boring practice. Yes, it was rote, but because he's practicing it, it becomes intuitive. It becomes a, a key piece of who he is in the same way when we read scripture, when we worship and sometimes doing it sort of in a rote sort of way, it's still having a, a, an impact at a very deep level that you may not even realize until you deal with a difficulty. We had a student who um, lost a, a family member in a very tragic way last year. And he, he came to us and said, um, I'm so thankful. This is a high school student. I'm so thankful for the liturgies and the prayers that we pray because in the midst of this difficulty, that is what I kept falling back on. Hmm. So, you know, I, I think, I think that's, um, you know, if, if, if you're thinking of worship as being less expressive and more formative, then I think it all makes sense. Maybe that's the problem. We think of yeah. worship as being expressive and it is, there is an, a, an element of that, of course, but it's also formative. And that's, that's what Smith is really trying to, yeah. uh, you know, the point he's trying to make. And I want to sit down on that point because I think it's important for us to understand um, our Sunday gatherings when we're coming there. Many of us in the evan- evangelical world, we imagine that we're coming there to express our love and devotion to God. And um, that's the primary reason. Now, I, I'm we do that. But that's not the only reason we go. We go to also be formed by 
worshiping God. And the way that we worship God will will form us as a human being. It'll shape what we love and desire. And so at Sacred City, every week, um, you know, we start off with a call to worship. We're reminded that God calls us to worship Him, and we're not trying to get His attention. I remember going to a church growing up, and they would literally say, you know, raise your hands and sing out. So we kind of get God's attention, and He's going to come and be here with us. And uh, I kind of thought, well, what's the bare minimum that we have to do for God to show up th- today, you know? Um, but no, God's trying to get our attention. And then we confess our sin uh, publicly. And that, that confession, some people who've kind of come up in the Catholic Church sometimes say, oh, that, what, that's not even a real prayer because it's, you're putting it up on screen. And I try to tell them, when was the last time you've confessed your sin like that, like we have up there, like not loving your neighbor or being greedy uh, with your finances, because personally, as a pastor, I've been pastor now for 20 years. Um, no one has ever confessed greed to me. Right. They've confessed adultery. You know, they've con- yeah. confessed stealing. They've they've never confessed greed, and very rarely do they confess pride. Yeah. Uh, and and but those are some of the core sins that Jesus confronted in the Gospels. Right. And, and so by programming in the liturgy a a confession about the greediness of our own hearts that is teaching us that's forming us to see that sin in our life and then to have the words to express repentance yeah i think that's great and by the way um the the liturgy of sacred city you know sarah and i look back on our 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 time at sacred city the liturgy had a formative impact on us. I mean, we, that's, that much is clear. And, um, I mean, I, I think within, within, uh, Christians, within Americans in particular, um, there is sort of this, if, if I didn't think it, or if I didn't say it, then it's somehow inauthentic. Oh yeah. Um, and I think that's maybe a big hurdle that folks have to sort of hop before they can become comfortable with allowing the words that another person wrote maybe hundreds of years ago to uh, kind of become their own. Mm-hmm. I mean, I find myself just sort of stimulated by it all because I'm thinking, yes, this is exactly like I, I didn't even realize it. And now it's put there before me. And now I'm realizing, wow, uh, Christ has covered a multitude of sins, many of which I, I was just completely clueless to. Yeah. So I, I think you're right. That culture of authenticity that thinks my, you know, I, I'll just say my pathetic communication is somehow more real than a more articulate, more thoughtful, more heartfelt. You know, I, I read these prayers and I'm like, oh, oh no, I do. That's how I want to pray. Like that. Yeah. I want that for me. I'm just inarticulate. And so I say, oh, Jesus, will you just do this? And will you just do that? And will you just do this? And it's like, my prayers are terrible because yeah. uh, that I taught myself. Right? And they're usually, they're oftentimes the exact same prayers. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> it's almost like a, just a loop that we go through. One thing uh, we've, never, we've never prayed at Sacred City from our liturgy is Lord, please forgive me for all my sins. <laughs> you know, just, just the blanket before you yeah. go to bed, just anything. Cover your bases. Yeah. Cover your bases. Um, so after we confess our sins, then we're reminded we, we have the absolution where the reader 
speaks the gospel over us and reminds us, if you've put your, we, they read a scripture and say, if you've put your faith in Christ, all your sins are forgiven. Uh, and there's just this sense of freedom where every, every week we're reminded it's not, um, you know, I'm not being accepted based on my works. I'm accepted um, because of the righteousness of Christ that's given to me uh, through the gospel. Uh, and then we go on and we sing some more songs and then we profess our faith together and uh, we publicly read the scripture and then I preach uh, verse by verse through books of the Bible and then we take the Lord's Supper together. And I think that's a formative practice where we're not just, I, I tell our people, this is the most diverse dinner table you'll sit around all week long and probably all year long. Different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnicities, male, female, kids, all kind of ages, all across the spectrum. And we're all coming to one table and we're getting the body and the blood. And this is, you know, this is a picture of the kingdom. It's the picture of Revelation uh, where before the great throne of God is a great multitude of, and you can't number them and it's all different races and all different people, right? Yeah. And, and that is, I want that to form us so then our dinner tables take on that aspect as well. Right. And, and what you've uh, imparted to the congregation through all of that is, is a story, a compelling story. Just like the, just like the cologne ad gives you a story about intimacy, you've provided a 45, well, actually, uh, you know, hour and a half, two hour long uh, story. Was that a jab? The, 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 I didn't the, know that was a jab. <laughs> Wait, in your jab? case, it's about two hours. Yeah. Um, no, it's not a jab. It's a great telling of the story. But we can week out. That story has a shape. And best of all, it's true. Like, this is the story of which we are really a part of. Um, that that shapes us. Yeah. And so we, we, uh, we sing again after the supper, and we do a, a prayer uh, written by uh, Thomas Cranmer. So we, we, we update it just a little bit, you know, get rid of the King's English. Uh, but we pray that together as a church. And then we, and then we send, we get sent out with a benediction that just reminds us that we are a part of a story and we've got a part to play. And we, we're, uh, you know, messengers of God, uh, bringers of the kingdom out. We go out into our society and we're, and we're on mission. Um, and that, that, um, liturgy is meant to shape us into deeply repentant people, deeply humble people, uh, deeply uh, thankful and grateful for the work of God. And then also people that are on mission, you know, that are, that are not just coming to experience something, but coming to be shaped so that they can go and live out this faith as, as good neighbors and bring mm -hmm. about human flourishing. So now we, we think of that and that's kind of, okay, we get that at Sunday morning. But when, when you were talking, what I was thinking is we forget how formative our spiritual practice all just in the normal stuff of life. Mm -hmm. So one, one, one way that I feel it is when I, I work out a lot. I think when I'm working out a lot and I'm fit, I think clearer, I feel better. I've got more energy, all that stuff. And I've noticed if I wait, if I sleep in, if I hit the snooze alarm, right? Once I'm okay. If I hit the snooze, snooze alarm twice, the rest of my day, literally from that first decision I've made, the rest of my day is shaped in a way that typically isn't leading to 
my flourishing. Uh, and what I mean by that is I hit the snooze alarm twice and I, and I kind of like, I've already made a decision that's kind of like, oh, uh, you know, it's going to mess the rest of my day up in a, in, a, in a sense. So I get up and now I'm a little rushed. I don't have time really to, to read as much time to read and pray. And usually the kids are already up now. And so I'm already now like I'm waking up to their screaming and, you know, like they're fighting and everything. And then I've got to, I just got to eat breakfast and then I've got to get out to my day. And it's like already started my day off in this negative footwork, uh, foot, uh, this negative place. And many times it's those days I'm like, I don't feel like working out. I don't feel like, you know, and it's just like one little decision. I start eating some sugar. I eat a bowl of cereal or something. It's like one little decision, one little rhythm in my life starts this cascading effect that shapes me into a person that I, at night, I'm like, dang it, I wish I wouldn't have done that. You know, and it shapes me into this different person. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about the... um, our daily liturgies and how our daily liturgies can affect us as lovers and, and worshipers. Cause obviously it can't be a one day a week thing on Sunday morning. Yeah. I find the snooze button to really help me. Get <laughs> See <laughs> different strokes for different folks. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I think the, the biggest thing is, and this is what Smith, you know, emphasizes. He, he, he wants us to begin to see all of our lives um, all of the things around us as liturgically, as as sites of worship, all of our practices as shaping us and directing us with some kind of vision of the good life. Maybe it's you know at the shopping mall we get uh, we get the the clothes and we get in 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 the end we get a new a new you. You get remade through the purchasing of products or remade through. Um, through, 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 through CrossFit or whatever it is, or, um, we, we experience victory through our team and we go to the, the, you know, the stadium, this worship site where we go through all these liturgical practices to hopefully get this emotional response of a victory or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think if, if we're, if we're, if we're seeing life with that sort of lens, then um, all of a sudden we're better to we're, we're better equipped to diagnose our practices and what we're doing, and and hopefully repent in in ways in which we uh, have turned a good thing into an ultimate thing, and we've done it. You know, all over the place we've done it. Um. So I I think. So, so there's kind of, it's two sides of a coin, right? There's the, um, there's the sort of diagnose false worship that's going on in your day-to-day life between, uh, Monday and Saturday, and then also put in place the kinds of rhythms that are going to orient your heart towards, towards the worship of God. Mm, Yeah. I think that's, um, so for me, if I wake up and I, I can hit the snooze alarm once, you know, and then I still get up before my kids, I can sit down, have my coffee, read my Bible, pray, meditate, um, enjoy God. 
and then I can, you know, go on and, and do my job and do my work. But what tip when I, and I've just, this is something I've noticed in myself. If I've hit the snooze alarm twice, um, I'm, I'm, I'm missing out on some of that and I'm quicker to pick up my phone mm-hmm. and, and go to Facebook or yeah. go to, go to like start my day. Cause it, Facebook, Instagram, social media, those are thoughtless, uh, practices. Well, we think they're thoughtless practices. So I can be in a room of people and I still can be on my phone, right? The kids can be screaming. I can be on my phone. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me. Well, meditating on scripture, reading a book, I can't do those when the kids are screaming and you know, and that craziness. Yeah. And so I think we miss out on how these little normal daily decisions we make are actually shaping our deep loves. We, we don't, you know, I would never, 10 years ago, I would never think hitting the snooze alarm twice mm-hmm. would, would influence how my day goes and then what I love because, but it does, it, yeah. you know, when I, when I wake up rushed, I, I spend more time on social media. I spend more time on entertainment. Um, my, my thinking is more scattered. The kids are more frustrating to me, you know, even yeah. though their behavior is the same. Um, and it's, and it, and I've drilled, drilled it down to this one, this one little thing. Right. It's like, so now when the, when the snooze alarm goes off, I, I, I can literally think I'm not just hitting a snooze alarm the second time I'm ruining my day, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and I, I don't mean this as like every time, but you hit the snooze alarm twice and then it becomes a habit and a rhythm. And then you're always waking up late and you're always waking up frazzled and you're frustrated. And then you're wondering why down the road you you had a horrible day. Right. Um, sometimes yeah. you, you can diagnose it back to uh, something small, sm- something small. And just yeah. these, these rhythms, um, you know, one of the things, you know, just like if you go to the gym, you, you go to the gym every day or three times a week, it's a natural rhythm. And every time you walk into the gym, you're not like, oh, I just got stronger or I just got fitter or I just, you know, feel great. Some days you just go and you just do it. Mm-hmm. And then you you realize a month, a year, whatever later, you're stronger than you used to be. You feel better than you used to feel. You've got more energy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I and I've really, you know, I don't know too many people who are successful at being fit and healthy. Right. Who, who only do it when they feel like it. Right. And, and, and at the end of the process, let's say, let's, you could, you could do working out. I mean, the, 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 the person that's trying to prepare for a marathon, for example, when they win the marathon and they did all of those runs when they were not feeling up to it and had no desire to do it, are they going to look back and say, man, that was the most inauthentic experience I've ever had because I wasn't in it a hundred percent every time that I did it, you know, I mean, it's no, it's how, it's how change happens. It's how we're formed. <laughs> that's, and that's what, that's what Christian worship is. Again, you know, it's formative. I just, that completely changes, uh, I think how we, how we look at it. Yeah, that's good. Well, we could, I know we could spend, uh, another hour on that, but I don't have, we don't have that time today. Okay. And what I want to do is I want to, I want you to, uh, get into this topic of education and it is, I think the Bible speaks to it and Deuteronomy in a couple different places that parents are called to disciple their children, raise them up the way they should go, 
teach them the word of God, teach them how the, the word of God informs every, oh, teach them how the word of God informs their biology textbook and informs their chemistry textbook and informs how they relate to human beings and everything. Um, and so Christians know that we should be educating our kids in a distinctly Christian way. But there's a lot of, um, I don't know if disagreement is out there on the options. Um, there's a lot of fear. Some, you know, there's just a lot of confusion when it comes to, right? You know, education. Yeah. Uh, so let's get into that a little bit. I want first off, explain to us what is classical Christian education. Okay. Well, so way back, you know hundreds of years before Christ, Plato, and he, you could even go back before him, but Plato's Republic, he, he prescribes the liberal arts as the means by which you, you, you educate and shape liberal people, which means liberated, free people, people that are free uh, to live well. And he, he identifies those seven liberal arts. Uh, there's seven of them, grammar, logic, rhetoric, and those are the language arts and then the, the, the mathematical arts, which include uh, mathematics, geometry, astronomy, and music. He lumps music in there with math, um, ordering sounds, numbering sounds. So anyway, seven liberal arts. That became kind of the dominant way of educating people in the Greco-Roman world. And then along came, comes St. Augustine hundreds of years after Christ. And he is educated in this system. He's a pagan, though. He converts to Christianity, and he's contemplating this topic of education, and he's confronted with a decision. Do I somehow appropriate this classical education and make it fitting for a Christian to have, or do we throw it all out and develop a new distinctly Christian education. And Augustine said, no, we're going to keep the classical part because it's really, there's some really good stuff and we're going to baptize it in the faith. We're going to make it, make it classical and we're going to make it Christian. And so he develops a model for education that kind of reaches its pinnacle in the middle ages, in the middle age, uh, the university system. And, uh, is is still present really all the way even in America all the way up until the late 1800s and then begins to sort of fizzle away as um it, it as education is sort of reduced it's flattened like the modern world tends to do it becomes flattened to uh that which prepares a student for work that's what education's for and so in the last 20, 30 years, uh, there's been a number of these classical Christian schools that have popped up. Uh, there's also, by the way, an essay by Dorothy Sayers written in the 1940s where she says, we need to return to this medieval, uh, the, the liberal arts education, medieval trivia, and we need to return to that. And it'd be great if schools do, but this is just sort of a, this is wishful thinking on my, she didn't say this, but it's the, the way she presents it is sort of like, this is my great idea. It's never going to happen, but I'm going to throw it out there as just an idea. Doug Wilson picks that essay up in the early 1980s and says, I'm going to build a school based on classical Christian education 
and apply Dorothy Sayers thinking about the trivium to the stages of, of students, the cognitive development of students. Um, and basically that, that whole piece of it is that students, when they're really young, they've got this knack for memorizing lots of information. And so let's, let's give them kind of the grammar of all subjects. They learn English grammar, but they also learn the grammar of history and science and, and their basic math facts and that sort of thing. And then as students get into the middle school years, they like to argue. They like to challenge things. So let's teach them how to argue well. So they take logic. But all of their subjects are now filtered through this emphasis on coherent and clear thinking and synthesis, synthesizing the material. And then as they get into high school, what's the, what's the preoccupation of a high schooler? How do I look? Am I impressing my friends with the clothes that I wear and the car that I drive and the music that I listen to? Well, let's take that preoccupation and channel it towards uh, rhetoric, towards teaching them how to communicate themselves winsomely and persuasively. Because the last thing you want is a critical thinker that's unable to communicate well. Yeah. That's a disaster. So we got we to gotta cap this education off with uh, rhetoric. And so this new, this new classical Christian movement of which Morningstar is a part of, which this school where I'm in Oklahoma City is a part of, it has, it has taken this, this Augustinian right, uh, model of education and has tweaked it with Dorothy Sayers' essay that she wrote in the 1940s, and it's created this kind of new form of classical Christian education. There's a lot, there's a lot more to say, but I'll, yeah. I'll start but with it's that. It's interesting. Yeah. So it's not just um, we're reading some Bible. We're, we're, we're you know, it, it's not just like a public school education with Bible with a Bible class. Correct. Yeah. And, and yeah, so actually, and this is one of the reasons I'm really interested in classical Christian education, because as best as I could see, and I grew up in a public school setting, but a lot of Christian education <coughs> in the eighties and nineties and seventies, even it was clear that they were running away from the public school, but it wasn't clear what exactly they were moving towards. But with classical Christian education, uh, it's there's it, it's not so much a rejection of public education as more it is of of a of a being drawn towards a much better way of educating humans, a way that's you know stands upon thousands of years of human wisdom on what it means to educate people. That's what we want, and that's what we're moving towards. Yes, uh, we're leaving the public school, but that's not kind of what's it's, we're more driven by what's the positive as opposed to the negative. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, I've seen it. I've seen the benefit of it with my own kids. I was very kind of antagonistic towards um, Christian school. Uh, I remember. You, you, you remember, remember one of the first first yeah. sermons I heard. So I, I, yeah, I think it was your first. <laughs> and I was, I was uh, the headmaster of one of these Christian schools. Yeah. And you're like, can we meet and talk? <laughs> yeah. uh, because I saw it as the, the Christian ghetto. I saw it as, you know, just pulling a kid out and not teaching evolution. Right. And, uh, and then having them, you know, do Bible trivia and all this kind of stuff. And that's because that's what I experienced. I went to a couple different private schools growing up and I experienced that. And then I went to the public school. And so my wife and I decided, well, we're just going to do the public school and we're going to supplement their education and do catechism at home and do these things. And then once we started 
trying that, Javin, I think, was in kindergarten, we started realizing that it wasn't just the influence of the culture that was bothering us. Um, half his class couldn't read. And so his teacher was spending all of their time, her time, right, maybe rightly, rightfully so, with these other kids who couldn't read. And my kids started acting out just because he was bored, mm-hmm. just because he, he wasn't challenged. And I saw this potential in my son. Uh, and I thought, you know what, I want something better. So we pulled him out and we did, cl- and I read a book called The Well-Trained Mind. Yeah. And we were do- we decided to do classical education at home. And so we were doing that for a semester. And then I was ragging on, uh, you know, private education or whatever I said in my sermon. And you asked to meet with me and you tell me that you're a, you're a headmaster for a classical Christian school in the area. And I've been here my whole life and never heard of the school. Yeah. And I was... And then next, long story short, the next year we put our kid in, in Morningstar Academy and uh, we've got three there now and we have, it's one, it's one of the best decisions that we've made. We, we are thrilled with it and um, I love seeing how my kid uh, has come alive. You know, he's memorized uh, the Declaration of Independence. He's memorized uh, Williamsburg Address. He's William, he's memorized, uh, or Gettysburg Address. I'm sorry, Gettysburg, Williamsburg, Gettysburg Address. He's got all these all this like liberal arts in his, in his head that I'm like, I wish I had that. Like, yeah. You know, I've got the Muppet babies intro in my head. That's about it. <laughs> I know <laughs> I've got some bad commercials. That's what I, that's what I've got. Um, so we've, we've really, I, I don't know. We've really seen it, but how, how or I've seen the benefits of it, see how it is shaping his love. And it ties so ties so well into the way we see spiritual formation um, at sacred city. You know, the catechism we're learning at church, mm-hmm. we're also, they're also learning the same one at school. Right. Uh, you know, the liturgy we have at church, that's very similar at school. So there's a lot of this, this crossover. Um, but how would you say, so what would you say to a parent? Uh, because this, there's a lot of decisions that go into how to educate our kids. Mm-hmm. Um I think there's a lot of bad ideas out there. I think one of our one of the worst ideas is my kid's a missionary, and I'm going to send him oh, into, yeah. the, into the public school to, yeah. to be a missionary. Um, and I, I really encourage all parents. You know, when was the last time we sent a six year old into a battlefield? Uh, right. You know, we we want to we want to send kids that are formed in their thinking, informed in what they love, uh, and not. Send, I say kind of send wet concrete into a that that system that's just going to get formed right. in a way that, that doesn't honor Yeah, God. that's a good picture. But what, I mean, how, how, what do you, how do you um, decipher, you know, a parent is trying to make a decision, obviously a classical Christian or private, that's, that's very expensive. Yeah. Stay at, stay at home would be very expensive as well because, you know, right. one person, one couple can't, one person can't work. Uh, yeah. And then, so how, how, how do you counsel a parent to think about the ways in which we as Christians should educate our kids? Well, I think the probably the biggest thing, there, there's a lot to say. I've got a number of things kind of flowing through my mind, but I think the first place I'll go is this. The Bible, first of all, makes it imperative upon parents in the older generation 
to raise up the, the faith community, to raise up the children in the faith. And so um, that can look that can look different. That looks different in different settings. But I mean, I guess the question for me as a parent is, how can I best honor this imperative? How can I best obey this imperative in whatever in whatever circumstances surround me, whatever options surround me? Um, there may not be a, even a Christian school in my area. Well, that makes it difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- I mean, there's, there's a lot of questions to ask, but whatever decision is made, whatever, what, however that question is answered, the effects of that uh, decision will carry on for eternity. I mean, because it's such a pivotal time. Um, you know, it's sort of like when you, when you first, when, when, uh, Sarah was first pregnant with our first child, we, we, um, every week it was like something so critical was being developed and, you know, their fingernails are being developed and fingernails need potassium. So eat lots of bananas because you don't want brittle fingernails on your baby. You know, it's like every week there was something like that. That was just so key. And, uh, the reality is, I mean, that's actually fairly true because even from the time that they're born in the interschool age to the time that they're 18, there is this critical nature to their development. Now, um, so I think it's, it's just, it's so, it's such an important decision because of the long-term eternal consequences that this decision will have on your child. Now that's not to say that you that you better get it right because if you don't you're gonna you know just screw everything up. Um, Jacob had his issues, <laughs> and Joseph went through uh, a lot of difficulty, a lot of badness resulted, and God sovereignly orchestrated His perfect purposes through all of that. Um, so uh, you know there's sort of two there's sort of two sides to the coin, but as long as it's within your power, um, I think I think it's incumbent upon a, a Christian parent to locate the best education for that child. And the reason, the reason I think, one of the reasons I think classical Christian education is so important is because, um, as we said way back er, early in this conversation, the heart is shaped and the imagination is shaped by story. And one thing classical Christian schools get right is they immerse students in the best stories that humans have come up with over the last, you know, several uh, millennia, going all the way back to the Epic of Gilgamesh. So these stories are, are being, students are being immersed in it, and it's cultivating these thick uh, imaginations. And when you combine that with the Christian worship and the Christian understanding of the world, it is a potent education uh, for, for the children of the church. I, I think it's, uh, I think it's key. That's great. I think I, I was talking to our church a couple weeks back about when you understand the story of scripture and even you get into the story of good and evil and that there's, there's, there's evil in the world. And we've been, you know, this, the, the flattened education that you talked about has also got a flattened story that everybody's mm-hmm. kind of good. And yeah. there's some weird, there's some weird, you know, uh, you know, anomalies out there, yeah. but 
you know, when the kid's like, I'm afraid, the parents are like, there's nothing to be afraid of. I'm like, yes, there is something to be afraid of. There's evil out there. And we need to be raising our kids, not just to be, you know, good little boys and girls. Right. We need to raise them. And what I said was kind of like dragon slayers, you know, like we need to raise these kids that learn you're in a story and you're called to push back darkness in whatever way that is. Yeah. You know, bring about human flourishing. There's evil out there, uh, you know, and so there's, there's evil empires in our, in our world today. Right. And, And we're immersed in a story that has, you know, God and it has Satan and it has good guys and bad guys in a sense. Right. And, and God calls us to be trained and equipped to, through Christ, um, be a, you know, be in the kingdom of God and be, uh, pushing back darkness. And our kids need to know being a good person is, is a, is a war. It's a fairy tale in a sense, right? It's like a story. It's, you're in this, there's going to come a time when you're in high school or whenever it is, that's, it's really difficult to do the right thing. Yeah. GK Chesterton, uh, has this quote where he's, he says, uh, if the characters in a story are not wicked, the book is. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, you know, classical Christian schools, I think, take that pretty seriously and, and want their students to encounter good and evil from a very early age um, and then on on through their, their studies. Uh, but you know what's surprising? Uh, in, in every school that I've been a part of that's a classical Christian school that's reading these stories – you get pushback from parents on the appropriateness of certain books that they're reading. You know, I, I actually, I sent my kids to your school so they wouldn't read this stuff. It's sort of the thinking. Um, But no, I mean, we we want to develop thick imaginations that understand the reality of evil, but also understand the goodness of, of, of God. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just I just heard on the radio or something there was the new um uh Tale of the Three Wolves or whatever the big or no it's the which oh goodness now I Three Little Pigs? No, it was the one with with grandma who gets eaten by the wolf. Oh yeah, the little little red riding hood. Little red riding hood. Yeah. In the new version, she grandma doesn't die. And the No. You know, grandma doesn't right. get eaten eaten by the the wolf, you know? There's like nothing really yeah. bad so no. your disobedience doesn't really bring about anything bad. You know, it's just yeah. no big deal. Go, oh, grandma's asleep. She, she'll right. come back, come back to do where the old story was. These stories were meant to have moral implications right. that caused me to hate evil and love good. Right. And, and have, make, and be frightening. Yeah. Yeah. And make wise decisions and live a good life because of it. Yeah. So <clears throat> that's interesting. So um, I agree with that. I think that's, that's true. I think, when you were talking about parents have to make these decisions and these decisions do have eternal consequences, but here's the problem many parents do, but we're all under grace. God's in control anyways. <clears throat> and, and this is what I, many times I feel like it gets kind of dwindled down to. It would take a lot of sacrifice, specifically financial sacrifice for me to send my kid to a classical Christian school I don't really think it's mandatory. And so I'm going to just send my kid to a public school and hope for the best and mm-hmm. say things like, you know, it's all under grace anyways. And, and, uh, you know, God will work it out and, and God's sovereign and things like that. Um, and I, I see that 
because we can't, I mean, none of us would say you have to educate your children this way. Right. There's, there's freedom in it, uh-huh. but it seems very, I mean, maybe I'm mistaken. It seems very clear that one decision would be better for our child over the other. Yeah, I, I certainly think so. I mean, I, and this is particularly true as the culture grows more increasingly, um, oh, grows increasingly adrift from a Christian understanding of the world. Um, and so that, you know, in all sorts of ways. Um, and even, you know, part, part of the, Part of the problem I have with um, kind of a public school, kind of the dominant form of education is that not only does it give watered down stories, like you mentioned, um, flattened stories with no character, not, no real good and evil within it. Um, it, it hardly even gives stories at all. Um, there, there is, it, it's increasingly reduced to technique, which actually isn't even a, an education in the historical sense of the term, which education really means a kind of formation. Um, now formation is happening unwittingly. It's happening mm-hmm. in any school setting. But if, if, if a Christian is called, if a Christian parent is called to, 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 to be the primary uh, formative influence in the child's life, the place where that child spends most of their waking hours is really important in that decision. You know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to beat somebody over the head with, Hey, it's gotta be classical Christian education or not. But at the same time, I, I, you know, I've, I've kind of organized my life around it. I mean, I've taken a position in large part because I want my own children to benefit. I've taken a position in these schools in large part because I want my own children to benefit from this kind of education. So, yeah, I mean, I do see it as, as being uh, extremely important. And, and, and if it's not decided, uh, if classical, if, if parents go a different route, um, there are certainly ways to supplement and um, edit and revise kind of the learning that's taking place in a, a different school setting, public school setting or whatever it is. Um, but it's a lot of work. And, uh, it will require a lot of prayer and, um, you know, I, I think th- there will be major challenges on that, on, in, in going that route. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, one of the things that we, we should probably say is you, if you rate, it's very difficult. I'm going to say it's impossible. And I have to prove this in a second, but it's impossible to raise good kids if both parents worship success or worship money, or worship something in the culture. Um, and so if if that's kind of our, if that's going on, you know, and you just drop your kids in public school, mm-hmm. and mom and dad are, are chasing whatever, trying to live up to the Jones, whatever it is, it, it'll be an accident, not an accident. It'll be because of the grace of God that your ch- child um, uh, finds Christ, and not because of the grace of God through good parents, parenting wisely, uh, to the best of their ability. Right. Yeah. And, and so that's, I, I think we have to be careful and we have to see that, that that's, that there's a real thing out there that we can be caught up as parents and in getting to the next income bracket yeah, and not really think through 
how important our kids' education choices are. Right. Yeah. So that's another thing. Yeah. I mean, I guess that would be the question. If, if the financial piece is a concern, how can you rearrange your finances in order to make this more plausible? You know, if, if it's like, I want to drive, uh, you know, the, the Mercedes SUV or whatever it is, so we can't afford the classical Christian education. Well, there, there, you, you've got a cultural liturgy that shaped you more than uh, a Christian liturgy in that instance. Yeah. Right. And that needs to be diagnosed and dealt with. And hopefully the church kind of culture can help shape that. But um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think, and there's, I think there's creative ways. So on the financial issue, what do you, what would you say? So here's the problem. <clears throat> if, what if, is, is, is classical Christian education only for the upper middle class? I, I don't want it to be. Um, I, there's nothing inherent in the education that would say that. Um, now the reality is we've, we've, we, uh, it's a private education, so it has to be paid for. Uh, not everybody can afford a private education. Um, some people choose not to. I think it's important that, that classical Christian schools work hard to find the kind of funding and scholarshiping that they can, where they can help provide the education to more folks. I even think it would be wise for churches to come alongside and help support um, Christian schooling in some way or form. Uh, and I don't know what that looks like. I mean, in some cases, churches will start schools. The easier thing to do would be to help maybe even scholarship students within the congregation. Uh, children within the congregation. Uh, so the, uh, to answer the question, no, there's nothing inherently up middle, middle to upper class about classical Christian education. Um, the difficulty is when it comes to how, how do you afford it? And I, I think scholarship is the answer. Now, how do you access scholarship dollars as a school? There are, there are funds of it. I mean, there's funds that, that can be tapped into. It's difficult though. Um, so anyway, yeah. All right. <clears throat> well, we've been going for about an hour and 20 minutes here. Okay. Uh, so I think it's probably about time to wrap up. Is there anything that you would want to say about classical education or just spiritual, you know, just the educational choices that we're making before we, uh, before we sign off today? I think, I think I would say this, that um, – in, in, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So that if, 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 if a student is going to be learning anything, ultimately they're moving and sort of groping closer to Christ. And then if you, if, if you want to provide them a, a full and complete math education, it has to be aimed at Christ explicitly because he's, he's the, the, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. If you want to provide a full and complete science education, same thing. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think no matter what, uh, whatever education you, a parent pursues for their child, it's important to see that because Christ is the glue that holds the universe together, uh, all education is inherently Christ 
centric, Christocentric. Yeah. Uh, and, and for folks who don't understand what you mean by that, <clears throat> it isn't that math would be different for a Christian uh, or an unchristian. It's the fact that math is true points to a, an absolute truth. Uh-huh. And that absolute truth is God himself, which Jesus is God's son, and he is the truth. And so right. to, have a, to have any standard of truth uh, and intellectual integrity is have to say there's, there's a, that, that, that uh, God it would be that standard. Right. That's good. Yep. So, all right. Well, Casey, I miss you, man. Uh, I miss yeah, we miss you guys. Yeah. So we, uh, we've moved on. We've got four elders now at Sacred City. All right. Uh, but we, we do. We miss you, and we love you guys. And I thank you for giving me an hour and a half out of your day Yeah. and talking to us. It was my pleasure. We love you guys, too, and thanks for the opportunity. It was fun. Thanks for being on the podcast. <laughs>